Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome to Mysteries Abound. A collection of stories about the unusual, the strange, the perplexing, and the downright odd. In our world today, mysteries abound. Welcome everyone to episode 28 of Mysteries Abound. This week we're going to be looking at a few stories. The first is the goat's crowning as the King of Ireland is in doubt. More on the ninth wave and a couple of stories about the possible location of the lost continent of Atlantis. The Captain Cook conspiracy and some paranormal tales. Those and other stories on episode 28 of Mysteries Abound. And from the www.fortiantimes.com website, a story by David Hambling. More on the Ninth Wave. Seafarers' tales of the Ninth Wave have long been dismissed as impossible by scientists, but no longer. Sailors are famous for their tall tales and have long entertained the world with stories of ghost ships, sea monsters, mermaids, and other wonders. Scientists are cautious about accepting such anecdotal evidence, and so accounts of giant waves taller than the main mast, tended to be taken with a pinch of salt. Experience shows that waves, which look like 12-footers, are often 6-foot, at most. Cool judgment is difficult to exercise when your life is at stake. Victorian oceanographers calculated that any wave of more than 60 feet would collapse under its own weight, and concluded that reports of anything larger must be exaggerations. The stories of giant waves did have a couple of features in common though. One was that they were not associated with storms, but seemed to appear as a wall of water behind a trough so deep it seemed to be a hole in the sea in otherwise benign conditions. Another common factor was that the waves were not single, but tended to come in small groups. They were not simply larger than average waves in a storm, but freak waves outside the range of anything normally seen. They have nothing to do with tsunamis or tidal waves, which are quite small out at sea and only achieve large size close to shore as they reach shallower water. There were some reliable accounts of monster waves, such as one measured at 112 feet from the U.S. Navy tanker USS Ramapo in 1934 and the immense wave that broke the bell on the Bishop Lighthouse in the Scilly Isles at 100 feet above sea level. Clearly, the 60-foot rule was wrong. But freak waves were thought to occur at any given point only once every few thousand years and so were not thought to be significant. 
the situation didn't change until research in the 1990s that prompted an EU-funded project called MaxWave in the year 2000. This involved looking at some 30,000 radar images taken over a three-week period by the ESA satellites, each covering an area of 5 kilometres by 10 kilometres or 3 by 6 miles. The study, which took four years, identified at least 10 waves with a height of more than 80 feet. This showed that such waves exist in higher numbers than anyone expected, according to Wolfgang Rosenthal, senior scientist at the GKSS Research Centre in Giesthacht, which analysed the data. Modern ships are designed to cope with waves of up to 50 feet, the highest that was generally expected. The surprising frequency of rogue waves could account for mystery sinkings in which ships simply disappear without any warning. Two large ships sink every week on average, but the cause is never studied to the same detail as an air crash, says Rosenthal. It simply gets put down to bad weather. When a huge wave strikes a ship, several things can happen. The ship may take on so much water that it sinks, or it may be simply overturned. If the wave strikes the ship end-on, one end will first dip down into the trough of the wave before being abruptly raised by the wave. In a large ship, this can produce forces so strong that the vessel's back breaks. Between 1969 and 1994, Giant waves are estimated to have sunk some 22 supercarriers, and these are defined as ships with a length of 656 feet or more, with the loss of over 500 lives. An unknown number of smaller ships will have suffered the same fate. Another side of Max Wave was to understand how such waves were formed. Computer modelling showed that outsized waves could be formed when slow-moving waves were caught up by a succession of faster waves moving at more than twice their speed. The two sets of waves merge, producing slower, larger waves. The model was confirmed by experiments in a giant wave tank in Hanover. However, we cannot yet predict when and where such waves are likely. There are a number of physical processes that might cause them, and these depend on the winds, currents and geographic features in a particular place. Certain currents, for example, can focus waves as a lens focuses light. The next stage of research is Wave Atlas, which map out the incident of giant waves across the world's oceans and attempts to identify areas where they could be a hazard to shipping. The first Wave Atlas results were presented last year. From a Fortean point of view, this is all quite remarkable. Rogue waves have gone smoothly from being damned, rejected as impossible by the scientific establishment, to being accepted as entirely respectable. Generally, with unexplained phenomena, there is far more resistance before they are admitted to the mainstream. Nobody has suggested that the waves detected by radar are just an imaging artefact, which is what has happened with the thousands of tiny comets striking the Earth's atmosphere, apparently detected on satellite imagery by Dr. Lewis Frank. Nor have there been suggestions that the wave tank simulation doesn't necessarily match real life, as has happened with attempts to recreate ball lightning in the laboratory. Perhaps rogue waves have been accepted with relative ease because lives were at risk if the denial continued. Or maybe it is because their existence opens up lucrative new areas for research. But it seems more likely that the breakthrough has occurred because no great reputations rested on their being impossible in the first place.
And from the www.futilitycloset.com come some oddities. Our first oddity is The Valentine Phantom by Greg Ross. Each year in the early hours of Valentine's Day, someone scatters red hearts through downtown Montpellier, Vermont. When they first appeared in 2002, they were simple photocopies, but by 2006, large banners were gracing the statehouse columns. Soon the decorations spread to the high school's chimney and a tower at the Vermont College of Fine Arts. Currently, there are no leads and no suspects, joked Police Chief Dave Janowitz in 2007 when 14 inches of snow failed to stop the bandit. But the investigation continues. Vermont's capital is not alone in this. For years, the same thing has been happening in Portland, Maine and in Boulder, Colorado. No one knows who does it or why. Oddity number two, a weather eye. Modern meteorologists might envy Patrick Murphy in compiling his weather almanac for the year 1838. Murphy had made a year's forecasts at once, including the prediction that January 20 would be fair with probably the lowest degree of winter temperature. The weather complied in spades. On January 20, the thermometer plunged 56 degrees and stood below zero for several hours, marking the coldest day of the century. Such a throng filled Murphy's London shop that police were called in to keep order. And the forecaster was immortalised in verse. Murphy has a weather eye. He can tell whene'er he pleases, whether it will be wet or dry, when it thaws and when it freezes. The almanac made 7,000 pounds and went through 50 reprintings and for many years afterward, the winter of 1837-38 was remembered as Murphy's winter. Somehow, he never repeated the feat, though. Oddity number three. About three weeks ago, while a number of boys were amusing themselves in searching for rabbit burrows on the northeast range of Arthur's Seat, they noticed in a very rugged and secluded spot a small opening in one of the rocks, the peculiar appearance of which attracted their attention. The mouth of this little cave was closed by three thin pieces of slate stone, rudely cut at the upper ends into a conical form, and so placed as to protect the interior from the effects of the weather. The boys, having removed these tiny slates, discovered an aperture about 12 inches square, in which were lodged 17 Lilliputian coffins, forming two tiers of eight each, and one on a third just begun. Each of the coffins contain a miniature figure of the human form cut out in wood, the faces in particular being pretty well executed. They were dressed from head to foot in cotton clothes and decently laid out with mimic representation of all the funeral trappings which usually form the latest habiliments of the dead. Many years must have elapsed since the first internment took place in this mysterious sepulchre and it is also evident that the depositions must have been made singly and at considerable intervals. Facts indicated by the rotten and decayed state of the first tier of coffins and their wooden mummies, the wrapping clothes being, in some instances, entirely moulded away, while others show various degrees of decomposition, and the coffin last place with its shrouded tenant are as clean and fresh as if only a few days had elapsed since their entombment. None of the learned with whom we have conversed on the subject can account in any way for this singular fantasy of the human mind. The idea seems rather above insanity and yet much beneath rationality, nor is any such freak recorded in the natural history of enthusiasm. And that came from the Scotsman, July 16, 
1836 and was quoted in Notes and Queries, May 23, 1863. And our final oddity, the Bedford Level Experiment. In 1838, Samuel Robotham waded into a drainage canal in Norfolk and sighted along its length with a telescope. Six miles away, an assistant held a flag three feet above the water. If the earth were round, its curvature should hide the flag from him. But he decided he could see it clearly. It follows, he wrote, that the surface of standing water is not convex, and therefore that the Earth is not a globe. Robotham's triumphant result stood until 1870, when naturalist, surveyor and obvious crackpot Alfred Russell Wallace attempted to disprove the result. His endeavour ended only in a heated argument, and eventually a liable suit against the plainest's Round earthers are clearly desperate men. In fairness, we must note that not all observations have agreed with Robotham's. In 1896, a newspaper editor conducted a similar experiment in Illinois and discovered that the earth is concave. Clearly, more work is needed. And from the www.reuters.com website, an article by Padraig Halpin. The goat's crowning as King of Ireland is in doubt. The annual crowning of a goat as King of Ireland at one of the country's oldest fairs is in doubt after organisers said their heir to the throne may be stopped from travelling to the festival. Traditionally, a male goat is caught in the mountains of Kerry in southern Ireland and paraded through the town of Kilorglan, where he reigns for three days of Puck Fair, a centuries-old festival of drinking and music and dancing. Locals may have to desperately trek the nearby hills after this year's chosen animal from the northern Ireland town of Ballycastle could only get a four-day licence for the trip south of the border. It takes at least a day to bring a goat from Ballycastle to Kilorglan, and the goat is on the stand for three days. It's not possible to do that within the four days, Puck Fair chairman Declan Mangan told State Radio RTE. The people in Ballycastle are looking for another goat who would be able to come for an extended trip to Kerry. In the meantime, we have to look around the mountains here, just in case. Mangan said time is already running out for the local goat catcher to find a replacement for the fair, which always falls on August 10 to the 12th, despite having origins that are not totally known. Our problem is, if we don't get a goat from the north pretty quick, our goat catch, Frank Joy, will have to go out onto the mountains, and usually he is out for two or three weeks looking for a suitable goat, Mangan said. However, the panic could be good news for one lucky goat. If you are a goat here in the mountains of Kerry, you could well end up being the King of Ireland for the three days of Puck, Mangan added. And you may well ask how this story fits into Mysteries Abound. It seems more suitable for my other podcast, Bizarre Bizarre. But after reading this story, I find the whole thing a mystery. A goat? The King of Ireland? The goat must come from the north? The fair is called Puck Fair? A centuries-old festival of drinking and music and dancing? Well, that's not very mysterious. It sounds quite good, actually. And it has to be there for four days, and the goat is put on the stand for three days, and... In the meantime, they might have to look around and then there's a goat catch that might have to take two to three weeks to find a suitable goat and how do they tell what's a suitable goat? The whole bloody thing's a mystery. 
I just had to put it in. I hope you don't mind. The story of the lost city of Atlantis is persistent in our folklore and tales of the past. So in today's podcast I'd like to do two stories about Atlantis. The first from the unmuseum.org is entitled The Lost City of Atlantis and then a recent article from the independent.co.mt website Could Sardinia be the lost island of Atlantis? Firstly, The Lost City of Atlantis by Lee Christick from the www.unmuseum.org website. The idea of a lost but highly advanced civilization has captured the interest of people for centuries. Perhaps the most compelling of these tales is the story of Atlantis. The story appears again and again in books, television shows and movies. Where did the story originate? And is any of it true? Plato's Atlantis The story of the lost continent of Atlantis starts in 355 BC with the Greek philosopher Plato. Plato had planned to write a trilogy of books discussing the nature of man, the creation of the world and the story of Atlantis as well as other subjects. Only the first book was ever completed. The second book was abandoned partway through, and the final book was never even started. Plato uses dialogues to express his ideas. In this type of writing, the author's thoughts are explored in a series of arguments and debates between various characters in the story. Plato often used real people in his dialogues, such as his teacher Socrates, but the words he gave them were his own. In Plato's book Timaeus, a character named Critias tells an account of Atlantis that has been in his family for generations. According to the character, the story was originally told to his ancestor Solon by a priest during Solon's visit to Egypt. There had been a powerful empire located to the west of the Pillars of Hercules, what we now call the Strait of Gibraltar, on an island in the Atlantic Ocean. The nation there had been established by Poseidon, the god of the sea. Poseidon fathered five sets of twins on the island. The firstborn, Atlas, had the continent and the surrounding ocean named for him. Poseidon divided the land into ten sections, each to be ruled by a son or his heirs. The capital city of Atlantis was a marvel of architecture and engineering. The city was composed of a series of concentric walls and canals. At the very centre was a hill, and on top of the hill a temple to Poseidon. Inside was a gold statue of the god of the sea, showing him driving six winged horses. About 9,000 years before the time of Plato, after the people of Atlantis became corrupt and greedy, the gods decided to destroy them. A violent earthquake shook the land, giant waves rolled over the shores, and the island sank into the sea, never to be seen again. So, is the story of Atlantis just a fable, used by Plato to make a point, or is there some reason to think he was referring to a real place? Well, at numerous points in the dialogues, Plato's characters refer to the story of Atlantis as genuine history, and it being within the realm of fact. Plato also seems to put into the story a lot of detail about Atlantis that would be unnecessary if he had intended to use it only as a literary device. On the other hand, according to the writings of the historian Strabo, Plato's student Aristotle, remarked that Atlantis was simply created by Plato to illustrate a point. Unfortunately, Aristotle's writings on this subject, which might have cleared the mystery up, have been lost eons ago. If we make the assumption that Atlantis was a real place, it seems logical that it could be found west of the Strait of Gibraltar, near the Azores Islands. In 1882, a man named Ignatius Donnelly published a book entitled 
Atlantis, the antediluvian world. Donnelly, an American politician, had come to the belief that Plato's story represented actual historical fact. He located Atlantis in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, suggesting the Azores Islands represented what remained of the highest mountain peaks. Donnelly said he had studied zoology and geology and had come to the conclusion that civilization itself had begun with the Atlanteans and had spread out throughout the world as the Atlanteans established colonies in places like Egypt and Peru. Donnelly's book became a worldwide bestseller, but researchers could not take Donnelly's theories seriously, as he offered no proof for his ideas. As time went on, it became obvious that Donnelly's theories were faulty. Modern scientific surveys of the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean showed it is covered with a blanket of sediment that must have taken millions of years to accumulate. There is no sign of a sunken island continent. Are there any other candidates for the location of Atlantis? People have made cases for places as diverse as Switzerland in the middle of Europe and New Zealand in the Pacific Ocean. The explorer Percy Fawcett thought it might be located in Brazil. One of the most convincing arguments, though, came from Katie Frost, a professor of history at the Queen's University in Belfast. Later, Spiridion Marianatos, an archaeologist, and A.G. Galanopoulos, a seismologist, added evidence to Frost's ideas. The Minoan Connection Frost suggested that instead of being west of the Pillars of Hercules, Atlantis was east. He also thought that the catastrophic end of the island had come not 9,000 years before Plato's time, but only 900. If this was true the land of Atlantis might already be a well-known place, even in Plato's time, the island of Crete. Crete is now a part of modern Greece and lies just south of Athens across part of the Mediterranean Sea. Before 1500 BC, it was the seat of the Minoan Empire. The Minoans dominated the eastern Mediterranean with a powerful navy and probably extracted tribute from other surrounding nations. Archaeological excavations have shown that Minoan Crete was probably one of the most sophisticated cultures of its time. It had splendid architecture and art. A code of laws gave women equal legal status to men. Agriculture was highly developed and an extensive irrigation system existed. Then, seemingly in the blink of an eye, the Minoan civilization disappeared. Geological studies have shown that on an island we know as Santorinus, located just 10 miles to the north of Crete, a disaster occurred that was very capable of toppling the Minoan state. Santorinus today is a lush Mediterranean paradise, consisting of several islands in a ring shape. 2,500 years ago though, it was a single large island with a volcano in the centre. The volcano blew itself apart in a massive explosion around 1500 BC. To understand the effect of such an explosion, scientists have compared it with the most powerful volcanic explosion in historic times. This occurred on the island of Krakatoa in 1883. There, a giant wave or tsunami, 120 feet high, raced across the sea and hit neighbouring islands, killing 36,000 people. Ash thrown up into the air blackened the skies for three days. The sound of the explosion was heard as far away as 3,000 miles. The explosion at Santorinus was four times as powerful as Krakatoa. The tsunami that hit Crete must have travelled inland for over half a mile, destroying any coastal towns or cities. The great Minoan fleet of ships were all sunk in a few seconds. Overnight, the powerful Minoan Empire was crushed and Crete changed to a political backwater. One can hardly imagine a catastrophe more like Plato's description of Atlantis's fate than the destruction of Crete. Many of the details of the Atlantis story fit with what is now known about Crete. Women had a relatively high political status, both cultures were peaceful and both enjoyed the unusual sport of ritualistic bullfighting, where an unarmed man wrestled and jumped over a bull. 
If the fall of the Minoans is the story of Atlantis, how did Plato get the location and time wrong? Galenopolis suggested there was a mistake during translation of some of the figures from Egyptian to Greek and an extra zero was added. This would mean 900 years ago became 9,000 and the distance from Egypt to Atlantis went from 250 miles to 2,500. If this is true, Plato, knowing the layout of the Mediterranean Sea, would have been forced to assume the location of the island continent to be squarely in the Atlantic Ocean. Not everyone accepts the Minoan Crete theory of the story of Atlantis, but until a convincing case can be made for some other place, it perhaps remains science's best guess. And from the www.independent.com.mt website, which is the Malta Independent Online, could Sardinia be the lost island of Atlantis? Top scholars have gathered in Rome recently to discuss the exciting and controversial idea that Sardinia is the lost island of Atlantis. The theory developed in a book by the Italian journalist Sergio Frau has drawn international acclaim but also fueled heated criticism. Despite selling 30,000 copies in Italy, a detailed 20-point appeal by 250 academics has dismissed the book, claiming it sensationalises Sardinian history. But the theory received a major boost last year when the United Nations Cultural Heritage Body, UNESCO, organised a symposium on the issue in Paris suggesting the idea was worth serious consideration. Academics, archaeologists, geologists and historians from across Italy have met in Rome's Academia dei Lincei to look at the theory in closer depth and discuss possible paths of future research. The meeting has also been timed to coincide with the opening of an exhibition on Frau's ideas, originally shown in Paris last year. Atlantica uses Frau's book, The Pillars of Hercules, as a springboard for exploring theories and ideas on the legendary island and its whereabouts. Neither the location nor the existence of Atlantis has ever been confirmed. The first documented mention of the island dates back to ancient Greek philosopher Plato, circa 427 to 347 BC, who said it was destroyed by a natural disaster, possibly a tsunami. Traditional theories have placed it somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, because Plato said it was beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which, according to another ancient writer, Eratosthenes, were at the Straits of Gibraltar. But Frau believes Eratosthenes, a librarian and geographer who lived in Alexandria in the 3rd and 2nd centuries BC, got it wrong, and that the Pillars of Hercules were actually on Sicily. Frau had his brainwave after seeing a print of two maps of the Mediterranean as it was in the Bronze Age. One showed Tunisia and Sicily almost touching. The other of the Straits of Gibraltar was remarkably similar. Frau thinks Eratosthenes moved the pillars because in the 120 years between Plato's era and his, the Greek world changed dramatically and the strait between Sicily and Africa was no longer at the outer reaches of the empire. Furthermore, geological shifts and rising sea levels widened the distance between Tunisia and Sicily, contributing to Eratosthenes' mistake and reinforcing it over time. If the Pillars of Hercules really were in Sicily, Sardinia would be the obvious location for Atlantis. Frau's research has revealed that the Nuragic civilization, named after the Nuragis or stone towers that were built on the island, flourished on Sardinia between 1400 and 1200 BC. A catastrophic event, possibly a tsunami, is thought to have wiped out the Nuragic people of Sardinia during the Bronze Age, 
around 1178 to 1175 BC. Although Plato dates Atlantis to 9,000 years before his time, many historians think he meant 900 years, basing their judgments on his descriptions of the writing and bronze to be found on the island. Furthermore, if the Pillars of Hercules were moved to the Straits of Sicily, Frau argues that many classical writings become more accurate in geographical terms. For example, Herodotus writes of Corsica and the ancient city of Tartessus in one story as if they were near each other. If Tartessus were beyond the Pillars of Hercules in Gibraltar, the journey from there to Corsica would take more than a month by boat. Another writer, Dicearchus, says that the end of the Adriatic is further from Greece than the Pillars of Hercules. Malta and Gozo square up with this description, but not Gibraltar, Frau said. In our history at schools, we're taught that Captain Cook was the first European person to discover and map the east coast of Australia. Well, in this article from the newdawnmagazine.com.au, Greg Jefferies disputes that and offers some alternative ideas. Historians and archaeologists consistently ignore solid evidence that Captain James Cook was not the first European to discover Australia, while government agencies regularly prohibit access to shipwreck sites which would uncover proof for this assertion. Why is the true history of Australia being covered up? Why does history treat Captain Cook so kindly, despite the fact that in his later years he was an extraordinarily irritable man? who over the most trivial matters did not hesitate to flog crew members or burn down entire native villages. And even though all of the expeditions he led ended in partial or complete failure, Cook is generally, almost universally, lauded as the greatest of navigators, and his expeditions seen as milestones in navigation history, and on top of that it is claimed Cook discovered Australia. Lately the claim has been modified a bit as most people now know that the Dutch were sailing along the coastline of Western Australia a couple of hundred years before James Cook was born and of course Abel Tasman sailed along the south coast of Australia then called New Holland and landed on Tasmania. We also know that the Indonesians traded with the northern Australian Aborigines for at least 400 years before Cook. And most people now know that the Portuguese were trading out of Timor since the 15th century. So now we say Captain Cook discovered the east coast of Australia. Or did he? And why does it matter if he did or did not? It matters because history shapes our world view, our culture and our social structures. If we believe a description of the past to be true when in fact it is false, our view of how we arrived at the present is flawed which in turn allows powerful social structures and groups to exist which might not otherwise be able to justify their existence. This is why Japan avoids including true histories of World War II in its school's curriculum. The idea that an Englishman discovered Australia is fundamental to the maintenance of the notion of Australia as a predominantly white Anglo-Saxon society. There are several subtle messages laying behind the notion of Captain Cook, the great English navigator, sailing around the world and discovering the vast continent of Australia. One of these was important in the 19th and early 20th centuries, affirming the inherent superiority of English society and technology as a justification of the British Empire's dominion over much of the planet. 
Another was fundamental to the English claims of ownership of Australia, all of Australia, even though Cook only discovered the East Coast. The British discovery of Australia also underpins Australia's belief that the British system of government is the best, better than, say, the French or Spanish systems. Likewise, Australia's legal system, both civil and criminal, is British, as in the way we structure our police and military forces, etc. Not because they are the best ways of doing things, but because they are the British ways. Thus, it has been important that the myth of the great Captain Cook was propagated and perpetuated over the last 200 years. Yet there were other nations who also had valid claims on Australia the Dutch, the French, and importantly, the Spanish, England's old nautical enemy. The story of Captain Cook was propagated wherever the English could plant the seed, certainly throughout the British Empire and by default most of North America. But is it the truth? Was Captain Cook the first European to discover Australia, even just the East Coast? The answer in a nutshell is no. It's as simple as that. Ask any Spaniard and he or she will tell you that Captain Cook used stolen Spanish maps to navigate his way around the Pacific. He also used copies of Abel Tasman's maps, which he acknowledged because at the time Tasman's maps were readily available. He does not acknowledge the Spanish maps. However, when Cook arrived in Hawaii, which he claims to have been the first European to discover, he was recognised and greeted as a returning god a god who had visited those islands many years before, bringing the Hawaiians knowledge of agriculture. They recognised Cook as this god because he sailed a ship, just like the one their previous visitor had sailed, and of which they still made venerated models. A tall, multi-masted ship with huge sails and no paddles. These were models of a Spanish ship. Cook was quick to see the advantages of being mistaken for a god and pretended to be that god in order to restock his ships with food and water. Sadly for Cook, he overplayed his hand and overtaxed the generosity and tolerance of the Hawaiians who realised they had both been duped and exploited and as a result killed Cook and then cooked and ate him. Yes, Cook got cooked. The Spanish who left the Hawaiians on better terms than Cook had been regularly sailing the Pacific for about 300 years before Cook entered that vast ocean. Their presence there was the result of the combined efforts of Christopher Columbus and Ferdinand Magellan and Spain's interest in maritime exploration, in the search of new lands. The Spanish ships sailed mostly from Mexico or Peru to Manila following a course utilising favourable winds and currents that flowed east to west between 5 and 10 degrees south of the equator until they reached Guam, where they restocked with water and other supplies before the final leg of their journey to the Philippines. This was a treasure trade route vital to the Spanish and Mexican economies. Silver, gold and jewels were taken from the slave mines of South America to Manila in huge galleons, where they were traded for silks, porcelains and other goods out of China and Asia. This was called the Manila Galleon Trade, and each ship, and there were a number every year, carried enough wealth to equal a king's ransom. The Spanish considered the Pacific and everything in it, including Australia, their property, and felt completely secure in their Pacific domain until Sir Francis Drake sailed around Cape Horn and began pillaging the Spanish treasure fleets there. The Spanish Empire had been built around maritime exploration and expansion. It is inconceivable that Spanish ships sailed the Pacific Ocean for 300 years and not discovered a continent the size of Australia. But where is the proof? The Dieppe Maps the first and most obvious piece of proof which is continually ignored by mainstream Australian historians is a well-known collection called the Dieppe Maps, a set of maps made in the town of Dieppe in France in the 16th century. These provide clear proof of either Spanish or Portuguese exploration of Australia's east coast at least 200 years before Captain Cook. 
The maps clearly show the east coast of Australia, as well as almost all the rest of Australia's coastline. In the Dieppe maps, the name given to the Australian continent is Java, La Grande. The Dieppe maps have proved to be actual copies of Portuguese maps. Another similar set of maps are the Dauphin maps, after a series of copies of the Dieppe maps made for the French Dauphin. Also, there is the Villard map, which is essentially the same map as the Dieppe and Dauphin maps. The Dauphin maps are elaborately decorated, not for any scientific or geographical reason, but simply to make the maps more interesting to His Royal Highness the Prince Dauphin. An important thing to remember, as many historians attempting to discredit these maps cite the images used in the decorations to dismiss the cartographic accuracy of the Dauphin maps. When considering the Dieppe maps, one should remember just how important navigation maps were in the European world of 400 years ago. It was the age of exploration, a historic time of maritime expansion, of empire building, of ruthless exploitation and greed. It was an age of conquest, trade, navies and more greed. The rulers and populations of the European nations wanted wealth, whatever it took. The pathways to wealth were on the sea, and those who possessed the navigation maps showing how to travel those pathways held the keys to unimagined riches. In those days, up until the 19th century, the information contained in items such as the Dieppe and Dauphin maps were often priceless, top secret, government property and jealously guarded as the plans to nuclear weapons or interplanetary space travel might be guarded today. For this reason, various nations and their captains contrived ways of concealing the information contained within their maps. Maps in code, so to speak. Cracking the secret code of those ancient Dieppe maps was the work of the Australian Army mapmaker and surveyor Brigadier Lawrence Fitzgerald, OBE, a man of genius, largely ignored by mainstream academia. Fitzgerald, with his extensive practical and theoretical experience with maps and map-making, could clearly see there were sections of the Dieppe maps that resembled Australia's coastline, but there were also sections that did not. After considerable research, the Brigadier discovered that the maps which ancient navigators used on ships were not in the form we generally think of. That is, a huge rolled-up sheet of parchment or paper that covered the captain's entire table. No, they were in sections on separate sheets, generally kept loose in a folio or even in separate folios. To protect the information in the maps, should they fall into rival hands, the maps did not join up neatly, or even had small components to make reassembling and interpreting the maps difficult or impossible if the keys to the codified maps were not available. Brigadier Fitzgerald realised that he only had to divide the Dieppe maps into the appropriate sections and then discover how to reassemble them in the correct order. This he did, and in his book Java Le Grande, he clearly shows that the Portuguese had accurately and extensively mapped the Australian coastline more than 200 years before Cook. His work is largely ignored, even ridiculed, by most Australian and British historians. Why? The next question most people ask is, if the Spanish and or the Portuguese visited Australia before Cook, why are there no archaeological traces of them? The answer is simple. There are many, but they are ignored, covered up or hidden. Sand miners uncovered the remains of an oak ship under the sand on a beach near Byron Bay. The ship was reburied in the sand mining process, but a private citizen paid for a piece of timber retrieved from the ship to be carbon dated by an independent laboratory. The results came back that the wood, which was oak, dated to the 16th century. Archaeologists from the University of New England in Armidale, New South Wales, got excited and they organised a magnetometer survey of the area. The ship was relocated under the sand and a dig planned to excavate it and solve the mystery. A week before the dig was scheduled to begin, word came high in the New South Wales government that the dig could not proceed and it was stopped. There were no reasons given, 
That was 1995, and the shipwreck is still sitting there under the sand. Another example is a shipwreck buried under the sand dunes at Facing Island near Gladstone in Queensland. This shipwreck was seen after a storm in the early 19th century, but its location was lost when the sand covered it again. A five-foot-long bronze cannon with the date of 1596 stamped on it and other artefacts were found around Gladstone in the mid-19th century and the subject of articles in the early Australian press, several essays, investigations and books. In the late 1990s, the wreck on Facing Island was again exposed for a few days by a cyclone. Fortunately, a fisherman saw it and took photographs as well as noting the shipwreck's location, all of which he gave to the local Maritime Museum. The Maritime Museum, with suitably qualified personnel, applied to the government for a permit to investigate the shipwreck. The application was refused and a warning given that anyone attempting to excavate or otherwise investigate the wreck would face prosecution under the draconian penalties of Australia's Historic Shipwrecks Act. The shipwreck is still buried under the sand on Facing Island. The list of possible pre-cooked shipwrecks is long and includes the mahogany ship at Warrnambool. In the case of the mahogany ship, the fact that it is being described as being built of mahogany indicates it was built in either South America or the Caribbean as this is the only area that mahogany trees grow. As it was an old wreck in 1836 when it was first seen, it could only have been of Portuguese or Spanish origin. The Stradbroke Island Galleon in Queensland is a ship built of European oak about 30 metres long. It lays in a peat swamp where it was first seen in the 1860s and which the local Aborigines said had been in the swamp a long time. In the case of the Stradbroke Galleon, we actually have historic records of Aboriginal oral traditions that report the arrival of the shipwreck victims in an Aboriginal camp and even the fact that one of them was named Juan. Both of these shipwrecks have an extensive presence on the internet, so I will not go into detail about them here. A simple Google search will bring up a wealth of information. Another ancient shipwreck was noted by Governor Oxley in 1821 off the beach at Fingal Head in northern New South Wales. There is also a shipwreck at Caravel Creek in the Hitchinbrook Channel in Queensland, and the list goes on. Apart from the pre-cooked shipwrecks, there are numerous artefacts that have been found scattered around the sites of these wrecks or actually taken off the wrecks in the early days before the government actively intervened to suppress information about possible pre-cooked shipwrecks. For example, coins were found on the beach where the mahogany ship is buried. These have generally been described as Spanish coins, but I would guess they could be Portuguese as they have never been identified by experts. In the case of the Stradbroke Island Galleon, there have been coins, a sailor's dirk, a brass walking stick head dated by experts to Spanish or Portugal in the 16th century, a rapier sword blade, a ship's bell and various other items. A lead weight has been found by a university geologist while digging for pumice in undisturbed sand strata on Fraser Island, Queensland. This lead weight was accurately dated as having been laid down on Fraser Island over 400 years ago, and using radioactive isotope fingerprinting, the lead can be proved to have come from mines in the south of France. A bronze 16th century Portuguese cannon is on display at the Queensland Maritime Museum in Brisbane, which was found on the Great Barrier Reef, and the list goes on and on. Why is all this evidence ignored by Australian historians and archaeologists? Why does the government continue to block the excavation of possible pre-cooked sites? Until the Mabo court case and the granting of Aboriginal land rights, the obvious reason would have been the legal implications, allowing a challenge to Cook's pronouncement that Australia was terra nullis, unoccupied land. It was this proclamation that allowed Britain to occupy Australia without entering into negotiations with its existing occupants, the Aborigines. After Mabo, this reason no longer applies and an even sillier 
pettier motive may exist, the defence of reputations. Many Australian historians and archaeologists have for so long scoffed at the idea any nation reached and explored the east coast of Australia before Cook that they have entrenched themselves in their position. There is no way for them to change their official position without admitting they ignored solid scientific evidence in defence of a historic status quo. In universities and museums there are professors and doctors of history and archaeology who have painted themselves into a corner by systematically deriding all those who present theories or evidence that Cook was not the first European to discover and explore Australia. They use their influence and position to block any attempts to get the final proof they are wrong, proof that would require history books to be rewritten and leave reputations in tatters. History shows us that these attempts to falsify history, to block discovery, ultimately fail. It's only a question of time. And to wind up today's podcast, from the www.rents.com, Vanished, Strange Cases of Unsolved Disappearances by Stephen Wagner. I was driving in a deserted part of a northern state when I started seeing lizard-like things about two to three feet high standing upright near the sides of the gravel road I was on. They looked intelligent not like lizards or wild beasts. They seemed to follow me with their heads and eyes. These lizard-like things were really ugly, so I started to drive faster. And I swear the road turned into a light brown, packed earth drive, and the trees and all such were different, like nothing I had ever seen anywhere. There were funny-coloured plants with curly leaves and vines that smelled funny. I had the window down. The whole scene was unreal, and the worst was that small, squat, human-like people were around the sides of this earthen trail, working and not paying much attention to me. They were gathering big triangular fruits and hitting them with sticks. Some did look at me as I passed in my car and shook their heads as if to say I had made a mistake. I actually wet my pants, I was so scared but I drove out, just like I drove in, and suddenly everything was normal. History is peppered with intriguing tales of people who, for all intents and purposes, inexplicably vanish from the face of the earth without a trace. These stories, some of the most fascinating in the annals of the unexplained, vary from being well documented to having the flavour of mere legend and folklore but they are all fascinating because they force us to question the solidarity of our existence. Where did these vanished people go? A time portal? Another dimension? Into a UFO? Consider these chilling possibilities as you listen to these amazing reports. The Bennington Triangle Between 1920 and 1950, Bennington, Vermont, was the site of several completely unexplained disappearances. On December 1, 1949, Mr. Tetford vanished from a crowded bus. Tetford was on his way home to Bennington from a trip to St. Albans, Vermont. Tetford, an ex-soldier who lived in the soldier's home in Bennington, was sitting on the bus with 14 other passengers. They all testified to seeing him there sleeping in his seat. When the bus reached its destination, however, Tetford was gone. 
although his belongings were still on the luggage rack and a bus timetable lay open on his empty seat. Tetford has never returned or been found. On December 1, 1946, an 18-year-old student named Paula Weldon vanished while taking a walk. Weldon was walking along the long trail into the Glastonbury Mountain. She was seen by a middle-aged couple that was strolling about 100 yards behind her. They lost sight of her when she followed the trail around a rocky outcropping, but when they rounded the outcropping themselves, she was nowhere to be seen. Weldon has not been seen nor heard from since. In mid-October 1950, eight-year-old Paul Jepson disappeared from a farm. Paul's mother, who earned a living as an animal caretaker, left her small son happily playing near a pigsty while she tended to the animals. A short time later, she returned to find him missing. An extensive search of the area proved fruitless. The Vanished Cripple Owen Parfitt had been paralysed by a massive stroke. In June 1763 in Shepton Mallet, England, Parfitt sat outside his sister's home, as was often his habit on warm evenings. Virtually unable to move, the 60-year-old man sat quietly in his nightshirt upon his folded great coat. Across the road was a farmer where workers were finishing their workday by pooking the hay. At about 7pm, Parfit's sister Susanna went outside with a neighbour to help Parfit move back into the house as a storm was approaching. But he was gone. Only his folded greatcoat, upon which he sat, remained. Investigations of this mysterious disappearance were carried out as late as 1933, but no traces or clues to Parfit's fate were ever uncovered. The Disappearing Diplomat British diplomat Benjamin Bathurst vanished into thin air in 1809. Bathurst was returning to Hamburg with a companion after a mission to the Austrian court. Along the way, they had stopped for dinner at an inn in the town of Perelberg. Upon finishing the meal, they returned to their waiting horse-drawn coach. Bathurst's companion watched as the diplomat stepped over to the front of the coach to examine the horses and simply vanished without a trace. The Time Tunnel In 1975, a man named Jackson Wright was driving with his wife from New Jersey to New York City. This required them to travel through the Lincoln Tunnel. According to Wright, who was driving, once through the tunnel, he pulled the car over to wipe the windshield of condensation. His wife Martha volunteered to clean off the back window so they could more readily resume their trip. When Wright turned around, his wife was gone. He neither heard nor saw anything unusual take place, and a subsequent investigation could find no evidence of foul play. Martha Wright had just disappeared. And finally, the mysterious cloud. Three soldiers claimed to be witnesses to the bizarre disappearance of an entire battalion in 1915. They finally came forward with the strange story 50 years after the infamous Gallipoli campaign of World War I. The three members of a New Zealand field company said they watched from a clear vantage point as a battalion of the Royal Norfolk Regiment marched up a hillside in Suvla Bay, Turkey. The hill was shrouded in a low-lying cloud that the English soldiers marched straight into without hesitation. They never came out. After the last of the battalion had entered the cloud, it slowly lifted off the hillside to join other clouds in the sky. When the war was over, figuring the battalion had been captured and held prisoner, the British government demanded that Turkey return them. The Turks insisted, however, that it had neither captured nor made contact with these English soldiers.
Well, that concludes episode 28 of Mysteries Abound. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Remember, the show notes can be found at www.origins.info and go to the menu and click on the Mysteries Abound show notes link. And don't forget that I do two other podcasts, one called Origins and the other called Bizarre Bizarre. And both are available through iTunes and Podcast Alley and places like that. If you would like to provide feedback for the podcast, the email address is mysteries at origins.info and Origins is spelled O-R-I-G-I-N-Z or you can do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley. And if you do enjoy the podcasts and would like to make a contribution to keep the podcasts going, it can be done through www.origins.info. Anything that you contribute is always greatly appreciated. Anyway, it's bye for now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.